Welcome to the Legendarium. A bit of a longer hiatus than we normally like to take, but we are back with book four of the Belgariad. This is Castle of Wizardry. I hope you guys enjoyed the book as much as we did, and we can't wait for book five. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Uh, this is episode four in our Belgariad series. Uh, it is Castle of Wizardry. And stop whispering, you guys, so that I can introduce you. Uh, my word, they annoy me so much. Uh, so here we go. Some introductions. Of course, uh, my co-host, he won't shut up about Star Wars, so I'm going to send him to a galaxy far, far away. It's Ryan Bruckman. There has been an awakening. Stop that. Have you felt it? No. I don't know, actually, if you guys knew this, but Soylent Green is actually Ken Johnson. Um, so, congratulations, Ken. I'm saying nothing. And, frankly, his name is insult enough. It's Todd Wenty. Soylent Green is Ken? Yes. Um, oh, well. And, of course, I'm Craig Hanks, but your long-suffering host. Uh, Emphasis aw. on the suffering. We make sure of it. Oh, my god! Every time. Every no, seriously, time. my blood pressure is just through the roof right now. You guys <laughs> stress me out so much whenever we start a podcast. Uh, but speaking of, uh, of this podcast... He invites um, us back every time. You wouldn't have it any other way. <sighs> Man. Hey, I'm trying to segue badly here. And you're doing a great job of (laughs) Uh, The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks, uh, and actually by visiting our website, thelegendariumpodcast.com. New subscribers can get a free audiobook by clicking the Audible link at the bottom of any page. So head to thelegendariumpodcast.com. If you haven't signed up for Audible yet, this is your chance. Uh, You get a month free. And then if you like it, you'll keep going, and I promise you'll keep going because it's awesome. Uh, of course, Audible, the audiobooks on Audible run the gamut of genres, uh, but of course our listeners will be especially interested in the fantasy and sci-fi stuff, I would think. We would certainly hope so. I would I would hope so. And so, um, Otherwise, they're listening to this podcast for self-inflicted masochistic reasons. Well, they may still be doing that. Uh, I know that's why I host it. Um so let's let's all uh, do our a quick um, recommendation for a fantasy or sci-fi book or anything else, I guess, if you want. But mine is actually, um, uh, obviously, if you're a long-time listener, you know that we're huge fans of Brandon Sanderson, uh, especially his Mistborn series. But I would say go check out his uh, short story Legion and its sequel. Um, there's a, another one. Uh, that he re- released uh, sometime this year, I think. Anyway, but the first one, it's really quite short. It's uh, I think it's maybe an hour or two uh, mm. on Audible. So it's fairly cheap. Um, I Actually, I honestly, I wouldn't waste your free credit on it. <laughs> Do that with a really big book. But then, you know, go ahead and spend the 2 or $3 and get Legion by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, it's fantastic. It's about a guy who has multiple personalities in his head. And, you know, he's got a dozen of these personalities and he uses them to solve crimes because they're all they all have their own little specialties um, and areas of expertise. Kind of like Ryan. A little bit like Ryan, except that uh, this book except is for awesome. useful personalities. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's the good side of multiple personality disorder. <laughs> so um, anyway, Todd, what about you? Uh, I would highly recommend the Lost Fleet series by Jack Campbell. Um, if there is a if there is a series that you want to get into. Um, that gives you an opportunity to to find out about how space combat really should work. Mm. Uh, this would be a good series to get into, and believe me, it will be easier to listen to it than it will be to read it. Oh, yeah? Yes. Is that because it's long? Uh, no, because it's very complicated, and it took me reading, and I'm, I mean, I really enjoyed it, and it, but it took me about two times through reading the space combat sections to understand exactly what he was talking about when he started talking about moving at partial C and making sure that starboard and, and uh, your, port were actually workable still in space and it was f- really cool but, yeah i yeah. was gonna say a sterling recommendation todd no really it was great stuff but might be enjoying it more if you listen to it than if yeah. you read it all right ken what about you uh i was gonna say in the realm of fantasy that you should go get al gore's inconvenient truth but oh my oh. gosh he'll be only, here all week but that's only pandering to craig so <laughs> I don't think you get what this podcast is about. True, true dystopian future. One of the one of the better dystopian future books that was uh, written in the early 1900s, 1984, by George Orwell. 
It, it still stands up. I mean, obviously, you know, we're well past 1984, but it still stands up well as a dystopian future type. One of my that. favorite novels of all time. Yeah. Although, Mine too. Yeah, if I if I were to say which is closer to the truth, I would throw out 1984 and say Brave New World is oh, much yeah. much yeah. closer to what we're living now or could be living, you know, in the not too distant future. I would even say the the better George Orwell book was Animal Farm. Oh yeah. 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 I think it's better, but um but nineteen eighty four for some reason for me that one really yeah, that one reaches out and grabs you. Starting yeah. a conversation from the two guys with Reagan as a tramp stamp. Do it to Julia. <laughs> Do it to Julia. Uh, Ryan, I am almost afraid to ask. <laughs> I actually want to invite everyone to come on a journey with me. Uh, we had a a listener fan person uh, come and recommend a series to us that neither Craig or I had actually heard of before. Um, it's called the uh, Malazan Book of the Fallen. Uh, and I'm really intrigued by the premise that he kind of put forward to to tell us about this series. And so I'm going to go see if I can find it on Audible and use my free credit to see if the series is worth worth getting into. He did warn us. He's like, it's less than Game of Thrones in terms of adult content, but probably a little more than a lot of the stuff we've read so far. Than the Sword of Shannara. Yeah. Right. Per se. So the Malazan, Book of the Fallen. I'm going to go see if that's any good. So... Someone can let me know ahead of time if I'm wasting my time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. So, yeah, uh, that is uh, a recommendation with a grain of salt, I guess, right? Yeah, if you're, so. not, if you're not going to be putting any money into it and just using your free credit, go explore something. Yeah, sure, why not? Cautious recommendation. Um, all right, you guys, uh, like I said five minutes ago or so, uh, today is episode four of our... Belgariad series. And so, uh, Ryan, what's the book we're doing again? This one is Castle of Wizardry. Dun, dun, dun. That's the British title. version, apparently. Yes. I'm going to do the entire podcast like this. Oh, good. Everyone loves a British podcast. Occasionally. But, uh, yeah, we're into Castle of when Wizardry, everybody. Blitz. Ken? Shut up. See, we are on the same wavelength there. Right? Finally. <laughs> finally, host and co-host are, uh, are actually working together. Glad I could bring you together. Ryan finally feels Craig's pain. <laughs> Sometimes. Anyway, there's a, a lot that's picked up in, the, in this fourth book in Castle of Wizardry. And uh, it's kind of the resolution of everything that we've built up so far. And then we still have more to go. Oh. <laughs> we'll I talk have, about that. I have things to yeah. say. <laughs> but as we always, let's get you caught up in case you're a little behind. So a lot happens here, so you're going to have to bear with me. All right, first, for our prologue, it's time to go back to the story of the King of Riva. This time we cover his rise to power and creation of the sword that holds the orb, all the way through his assassination and the hiding of his descendant line by Belgarath and Polgara to this day. All hail the Riven King. Which is all fine and dandy, but let's get back to our intrepid crew, who we had just left in a mountain that was falling apart after an epic sorcerer battle with which left Katuchik dead and Belgarath alive but unconscious. So our group flees from the tower with everyone in tow, including okay. the new child, Erend, and Taiba, the slave woman that Relg saved against his will. Erend? Yes. <laughs> As they make their way out of Cthul Mishrak, the, Gra- the Grawlim priests combine their power in an attempt to kill the child who can carry the orb. Aha. Polgara is forced to focus her energies entirely on protecting the boy, which leaves Garion as the sole sorcerer and the de facto leader of the group. I used de facto correctly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> When the Grawlums turn their efforts onto Dernick, Garion retaliates in a glorious and dramatic fashion. That was awesome. By projecting his shadow into the room with the Grawlums, destroying their focusing crystal thingy, and reaching into the chest of the lead Grawlum and threatening to crush his heart. Leave us alone. With his shadow. An exceptionally fine reason to stop bothering someone. Now, they're able to ex- escape Cthulhu Mishrak and return to collect Sinedra before re- heading straightway to the Isle of Winds, the home of the Sword of Riva and the Rites. Not straightway. Yeah, they, they, they stop by Feldor's farm. They do stop they by Feldor's okay. farm. Garion goes to Feldor's farm with Pogara. There's a little bit of a detour in there. Sorry. And Sinedra. And Sinedra. That, that's a great, it's a great scene. It's a great scene, and we'll talk about it later, okay. but let me finish. Sorry. All right. Well, don't the rightful resting place of the, the Orb of Alder. Now you understand why we enjoy it so much, Craig. No, I don't. <laughs> much of what has Cause, been... Because I feel bad, Todd. <laughs> I feel bad. You should. Because you're a bad person. Much of what has been predictable thus far comes to fruition as a large ceremony is held to return the orb to its rightful place. The voice in Garion's mind instructs him through the process as he accepts the orb from Aaron and reattaches it to the hilt of the sword of the Reven King. He is immediately recognized by all present as the lost heir to the Reven throne and the one who is meant to face Torak, according to prophecy. All hail the what? King. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. 
Oh, and don't forget that little thing about a Tolnedrin princess having to present herself for marriage to the Reven King, because Sinedra <laughs> certainly didn't. As yeah, her, I was going to say. <laughs> her response in the hall was quite possibly the best of the entire group. Oh, no! <laughs> you make a great red-haired little girl, Todd. While that might seem like a good place for this story to break, we still get more. Garion realizes that the coming war is almost pointless as everything rides on his fight with Torak. So he, Belgrath, and Silk slip out in the middle of the night to work their way to that great fated meeting. This, of course, does not sit well with Polgara or Sonedra. And we get a scene that truly puts into perspective the concept of hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. At least none of our wives can summon thunderstorms or obliterate our action figures with a thought. Yeah, speak for yourself. <laughs> Once they calm down, Sinedra and Polgara put into place a plan that empowers the queens of every court, and Sinedra becomes the figurehead of the West and leader of the armies in a love-driven attempt to draw away, to draw attention away from Garion's quest. With an army at Sinedra's back and Garion well on his way to face Torak, we reach the end of Castle of Wizardry. There's so much to talk about with that last part. Um, I think it was, was at the beginning of book three when uh, we got a, a chapter from Sinedra's point of view. Yep. Uh, and now we get you know, An four or five section. of them. There's a whole, yeah, a whole, the whole last of this book is from her perspective and I loved it. Um, uh, yeah, I thought it was a, a great little stroke. And also, um, we talk a lot about how fantasy for a long time, certainly not all of it anymore, but much of it feels like Lord, the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I, boy, did I get that strong when they're like, we must draw the eye of the enemy you yeah, know, right. and, and gather our armies. And, yeah. you know, that was very, very familiar to me. Boy and Belgrath saying, don't do anything. Just get, you know, just march around and look threatening <laughs> for a little while. Um, but, yeah, it's it's like uh, if Aragorn were actually Joan of Arc, right? Interesting concept. I, yeah, there Higo you go. Mortensen as a woman. That's <laughs> pretty close. Hmm. Anyway, I'm going to do this a little bit as a choose-your-own-adventure, boys. Uh, so we've got uh, the escape from Cathol Mishrak and the visit to Fowler's farm. There's a lot of things that are inside there. The escape from Cathol Mishrak... I don't know that there's a ton to say other than well, the scene with Gary, other than the stuff with Gary on having to become the leader. That I think is a big that, deal. Yeah, that was, and and that scene can definitely uh, somewhat satisfy Ken's desire for uh, level one punch and stuff. I, I did write that down, you know, the return of Hetar and... Oh, that was neat. Uh, just fun. Yeah. The, the hordes of uh, horse riders and... But uh, but let's talk about let's burgers. talk about Garion or Silk's um, generous manipulation of Garion in his situation. Oh um, yeah, when he he makes Garion the leader of the of the little group, uh, and and then takes the power away, sort of. You know, it, I it remind me exactly how it goes. So basically, what ends up happening is because Garion is the the only remaining sorcerer in the group silk turns and says well then you're you're in, you're charge, in charge which i personally am of the mindset that most of these people realize and they know who garion is most likely going to be or that he's important to this prophecy piece especially silk he's too intelligent not to have picked up on this right it, it seems like at least the the big the big ones are you know barrack and silk have they're of course they're in the know they i mean they've been tooling around with Bill, with Belgrath for years. Yeah, for yeah. Man- Mandarellan doesn't long. have a clue. Mandarellan probably doesn't have a clue. I doubt Relg has any clue of what's going on beyond you know marching down a hill. I want to come back to Relg in just a little bit, but let's finish. Okay. The but but okay. yeah, they're they're in the know. So Silk, I think Silk decides that knowing what he's going to become and knowing that he's not ready for it, it's time in this relatively safe environment. I mean, physically, no, they're not safe. They're being attacked on all ends. But to practice leadership skills that could affect an entire group of people. Silk says, okay, time to make some decisions. And he teaches him basic leadership principles like, don't say you don't know. You're in charge. You just... You that just was do. one of my favorite scenes from U571. Do you guys remember that submarine oh, yeah, movie? yeah. Uh, when the the captain's dead and uh, Matthew McConaughey is the new captain and his first mate uh, pulls him aside and dresses him down for uttering the words, I don't know. Love that. Yeah. yeah. I don't care if you don't know. As far as these men are concerned, you know everything all of the time. Love it. There was one paragraph I wrote down that he said uh, when when Garion was like, "Well, I can't, I can't be the leader." Blah blah, and and Silk tells him, "You can't go through life being afraid of what you are. If you do that, sooner or later, somebody will come along who will misunderstand, and you'll have to do something to show them that it's not him you're afraid of. When it goes that far, it's usually much worse for you and for him too." 
I wrote down one where um, it's a little bit later in this process, but it's still where Garion's thinking about who he's supposed to be, and it's where he's talking with Dernick, and Dernick says, it's always best in the long run to be what you are. It isn't proper to behave as if you were more, but it isn't good to behave as if you were less either. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And Garion says, the whole problem seems to be finding out just exactly what you really are. Oh, man. That is good stuff. Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful. Read read the line again that Dernick says. Uh, no more, no less. Um, it's always best in the long run to be what you are. It isn't proper to behave as if you were more, but it isn't good to behave as if you were less either. Oh, yeah. And I think for Garion, he's he he keeps wanting uh, right up until this visit to Faldor's farm. He keeps wanting to go back, and I think um, this is a this is a, a part that for me when I was reading it the first time rang very true as a coming of age story um, it, with, within, that, within that environment where you, you come to a point you recognize you have to let certain things go you have to be someone different and that different may not be what you were planning it to be um, coming back reading it now this is what my third time through um, which I'm sure listeners are getting tired of hearing me say so I'll never say it again um, that's but, not true but listening, listening to it or reading it this time I'm seeing it more from my children's point of view and specifically from one of my children who's about 14 years old. Um, and I'm watching him go through this and I appreciate even better Silk and Dernick and their perspective in this process of helping Gary and get to a point where he says, I I've got to grow up. By the way, um, if I can just throw this out about Dernick, uh, the great mystery up to this point has been what, who's the voice in Garion's head. That's been answered, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Uh, but I've always, actually, that has never been the primary question to me. To me, I get where everybody fits in in the prophecy and why they are named the way that they are in the prophecy. Mm-hmm, right. I am burning with curiosity about Dernick. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wait. Yeah, he's... Um, yeah, the man he's, with two lives. Well, I mean, I can wait, but I've, I'm very excited to see what happens in book five. Too. Yeah. Ken, talk into your microphone. I am talking into my microphone. Uh, um, I think that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because we can go in and we can talk about really Faldor's farm. To me, that scene is the, is Gary and going ahead and saying, all right, I can't go back. I've grown up. I, Faldor's farm was a wonderful thing in my life. It was great, but it's not going to be, it's not my future. And so that being said, I don't know that there's anything else in Falder's farm that really needs a lot of discussion. Yeah, he says goodbye to Zubret. He does. and There's there's one thing that I think needs discussion, and that is that Garion is learning that you can't make everyone happy if you're going to lead. Right. That is true. He's, he's you have to do learning, hard things. You have to do hard things in order to be a leader. And, and I think that that's something – Garion is such a nice guy. Um, and I, and as we continue to, to have him re-meet people, um, re-encounter people that he's already met, they, they, uh, David Eddings does a wonderful job of saying that they all look at him and notice that he's different now. Um, I think that's a really powerful thing that they're trying, that he's, that we're trying to put across that this change is not just a physical change. It is a deep seated change in Garion's behavior. He's gone away from being the people pleaser. Uh, and moved into an environment where he recognizes he's got to be somebody ready to do hard things. Well, that's why the re- the return to Falder's farm is really not just a closure for Gary, and but it's a closure for us too. Especially when you read these books in rapid succession, like we did, well, like we've done. I mean, it it shows not that rapid, it was pretty rapid <laughs> compared compared to when they were originally uh, released. It was pretty rapid, but. It, it it's it's a release for the it's a closure for the audience and it shows just how much he's grown from book one to book four to to us you know and the way he deals with Rundorig and and takes responsibility for you know ending things yeah it's it's it was an outstanding chapter yeah and the thing is is we're not left to we're not making we're not pulling this out of our backsides here this Polgari as they're leaving pretty much says. That's, that's why I brought you yeah, here. Yeah, that's why I brought you here. So you know you can't come back. And that's that's great. Um, jumping, segueing terribly, just like you did earlier. Sweet. <laughs> the voice in Garion's head. Oh you said gosh. it got solved this time. Uh, you know who it is. Yeah, the, the voice in Garion's head is the prophecy. Yes. Which is difficult to wrap my mind around, but kind of cool. 
it is pr- the prophecy. I guess if an orb can be imbued with its own consciousness, why not a prophecy in this world, right? I don't want to give anything away, but when you look back on that after having completed the series, you won't have questions about how the that you won't have any issues with connecting <gasps> that. Errand. Mm, no. 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 Just just boy, wait until series two. Uh, <laughs> I I uh, I was at Barnes and Noble the other day um, because it smells good, and uh, right. and I was looking oh. at the Melorian volume, they, right. the two volume series, just like they've got the Bulgarian now, and and I I'm getting ready to purchase those. I, I've got I'm an, those. I'm, I'm, I'm going to yeah. hold my comment about that. We need when we finish, finish when we, we'll when we get to book five. I want to talk about some stuff that okay makes the Malorian really worth doing. Anyway, so now that we know that the voice in Garion's head is the prophecy, we know we know where its power derives from. Somewhat, um, I just want to remind you guys um, and let this spark what thoughts it will. That uh, right now there are two prophecies in play. Oh, uh, right. yes. One called Ruin and the other called Preservation. <laughs> yes. Right? I feel like Yeah, I've you read got this. it. For, mis- for Mistborn people, right? Just uh, like that. Basically, it, yeah. yeah that's, that's what I felt like. I don't think you're talking. far off. You, I don't think you're far yeah. off in terms of it, the feeling. I, I think you're, it's right. a little it's different. Not, it's not analogous. But, uh, but yeah, two warring gods almost, forces behind the world and and it's not like it's not like one of them is good and one of them is evil it's just two separate they potentials. in order in order for them in order for one to exist the other must go and so right. they work to eliminate the other harry potter must not return to hogwarts <laughs> uh jeez wait so you're saying this is a common trope through literature i don't know i yeah i to what? be honest i don't know that i've encountered this particular way of uh of um discussing that issue well, of, of opposites so much of especially fantasy literature and science is the it's the battle of good and evil it very often can be broken down to just simply the battle between good and evil and in this case um based on perspective we have the side that we're following which is the good side and in most literature that is the case then you have the evil side which is the other side but we don't know exactly what's going on like you said it's not necessarily that they are good and evil just that they're two separate constructs here right. two separate prophecies and and the Murgos fell in with the wrong one or uh, or, or, yeah. or whatever I don't know the David, sociopath never considers himself evil David Eddings has done a wonderful job enjoy of, the next prologue that's what I'm saying David Eddings has done a wonderful job of setting us up for to, to see um, this group of individuals that he's been working with as the heroes that's his job that's the job of the author but he's also doing a, a very fine job of talking about what happens when religion becomes the dominating force in life and that there are times that religion says do these things that sometimes we sometimes individuals will look at it and go really why exactly am i sacrificing a human being at this point in time um and and what happens when those questions are no longer asked and when the answers are somewhat less than disturbing or perhaps somewhat more. He's doing a. I I, th- I think he's doing a wonderful job, and and I think that there's some. You know, we talked uh, in uh, when we were doing Mistborn about the different levels of books, uh, one, two, and three. That that on the first level, on level one, there's a lot of entertainment value. Certainly, a lot of entertainment value in this. Whether it's the punch or the comedy, there's there's lots to do. Um, a level two that was all about social issues, and I think that there's lots to be addressed here. Um, Sinedra's journey through um, Asturia and finding out about the serfs and some of those things, which I'm sure we're going to come to, does a good job of that. But David Eddings has also done a wonderful job of weaving through some some mythology pieces that cause us to really question, what does it mean to live a good life? That, that level three stuff, um, reaching for ultimate truth, uh, I feel like it can take two forms, and he does both here. Uh, or at least he attempts it. It can be argued whether he succeeds. Uh, but the two forms would be the high and the personal. Yeah. Uh, right? And so the cosmic two warring prophecies, uh, you know, all that stuff, the good versus evil, and then the personal choices that we have to make, uh, you know, discovering who we are, what's the right thing to do, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, yeah, I think he does a great job of weaving both of those into there through through a variety of characters, I might add. Yes, it's not all one character. Um, and that was why I wanted to come back and talk about Relg and Taiba. I was going to say, that's a, um, a really... F- I think it's Taiba. Taiba, Taiba. That's how I don't I'm know. saying it, Taiba. But next, next time, I think for book five, I really want to get Andrew on here, who and then he'll literally wrote the book, or at least the paper, on how to pronounce all this stuff. And then he'll yeah. destroy how I've always said these names in yeah. my mind. <laughs> it's Barack, people. It's Barack. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Not so, to me. But, but I think there's, you know, the, the, the struggle that Relg has with... His, with the issue of devotion um, and and what that means to him is is a fast at least for me it was very fascinating and in some ways it hits kind of close to home um, there's there's some pieces of that that are that are very interesting pieces um, very interesting perspectives and Taiba's perspective on what it means to stay free from sin. Oh yeah, um, and this her, whole conversation yeah. between Taiba and Relg is is well worth your time if you have any interest in the merits and morals of religion. Yeah, and, and I think I think both sides are are well represented in Edding's uh, uh, writing. Um, I think he does it. I think he does it justice. Yeah, it's it is a well thought out discussion that isn't necessarily propo- proposing that one is better than the other. It's Relg's yeah. devotion has led him to where it is, and Taiba's survival has led her understanding of sin and things like and that. And her understanding of what religion is. Yeah. I, when I think of Relg, I am reminded of the dual questions that I brought up on some recent episode. I can't remember what the context was, so forgive me for bringing it up again. But there's a question that people often ask, whatever your situation is, and that's why, why did you choose to do that thing you know mm-hmm. um whether it's start smoking or join a religion or you know take that job or whatever it is why did you do that and that's a fine question i guess but the better question is why do you keep doing it right right and right. so that's and that's uh, a question that relg's situation i think brings it, it implies to the reader is yeah he's a religious guy he follows this god ul who he should right i mean that's he's a very visible present god in in these folks lives uh so the question is and it, it it now isn't why did you choose to follow ul it's why do you continue to act this way why do you continue to be the way that you are you know following your religion so we know why he started but now his reasons for continuing are starting to crumble. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember if it... I don't want to ruin anything. It's not really ruining, but I don't know if it's in this book or in the next book that they have a discussion about why... about that devotion and why they continue doing that because yes. I, I want to say it's in the last book. It's the next So book. I'll, I'll let it sit for now, but okay. I think they do actually address uh, address that fact a bit yeah. in a discussion. A well, yeah, but a I, I would say discussion. we talk all the time about how fantasy, ultimately it's... Um, the whole point of it is to better yourself and to turn the situations around and, and look at yourself and how does this apply and how can you uh, make better decisions, be a better person. And this is a great question. Give me that, superpowers. That somebody can, this is a great question that somebody can ask themselves as they're reading this book or many, many others, uh, which is why do you continue to do the things that you do? Yeah, devotion has its place it's a generally speaking you know depending on what you're devoted to i suppose it's a good thing um but if you continue down that path without continuing to ask questions then pretty soon that devotion becomes blind devotion and you're no longer zealotry yeah it's a great word for it Uh, you're no longer considering the why and pretty soon what you're doing is completely empty and possibly harmful. And it takes, while while the while the beginning of the separation of those points is by degrees. I'm sure we've all we all are familiar with the idea that that a separation of degrees in in feet is minor, but a separation of degrees in miles uh, or even in hundreds of miles becomes fairly significant. And it's tough to identify when that separation occurs. I, I think that's one of the big questions that all fantasy literature helps 
uh, formulate an environment to ask that question safely because you can ask it and you can see people asking that question in fantasy literature and it doesn't mean that you have to ask it of yourself in quite the same way, but it does provide an opportunity for you to start thinking about it. I think if anyone were to come to me and say, I want you to, I want to challenge everything that you've, that you've thought and that you've devoted your life to, I would immediately say I'm not comfortable doing that. But by giving me a piece of fantasy literature, I get an opportunity to say, hmm, these are interesting thoughts. How do they apply to me? Yeah. Am I more Relg or am I team Relg or team Taiba? <laughs> well, depends on the day. Which yeah. incidentally, how how well put together is she for somebody who's basically been passed Penis around as currency for her entire adulthood? I really want to see this movie cast. Yeah, <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. Oh <laughs> no, I don't no, know. no, I don't no. know about that. I no. Um, okay, yeah, that. Well, you guys, I believe that was actually probably one of three intellectual discussions we've had on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And, you know. In all, in all history. Despite my so, best efforts. So can we talk, can we talk about Lelderin and his reuniting oh, with Garion? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, we're, we're, we're in the Isle of the Winds now, uh, the return of <laughs> Garion there, and he comes across Lelderin. And uh, Todd, what happens? Tell, tell us what happens. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I'm going to be welcome. <laughs> um, bless Lelderin's heart. He has not the ability... Um, Sorry, that was my phone. Um, He has not the ability to control his impulses, and he finds himself caught up in a whirlwind of situations that were not really his fault. Um, Beating the guard over the head. I didn't mean to beat him that hard. Um, (laughs) Shooting the king in the leg. (laughs) Breaking the king's leg. Um, Oh, beating a priest. Um, (laughs) I just wanted him to be quiet. They're just just all ideas that seem like a good idea at the time. I am am reminded, that phrase, I am reminded of Yul Brynner in The Magnificent Seven when they asked him, why did you jump on the cactus? Sounded like a good idea at the time. (laughs) Lelderet, bless his heart, he just can't stop. And then... Uh, the the moment when Garion and this is one of the fun parts for me when when we start to see Garion's maturity starting to take place and Lelderin is still completely lost when he he looks at at Lelderin and he says well maybe this marriage that was performed um, is a is a marriage in in name only and they're just doing it just to keep things propri- uh, proper and then he gets a chance to look at uh, what's her name uh, not Adara um, the other one yeah. Yeah, Adar. Oh no, Adar is the Adar is his cousin. Adar's his cousin. Uh, Ariana. Ariana looks at Ariana and sees that she has the same empty, uh, empty-headed stare. Two of beautifully affection. stupid people who stare at each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I and sounds I said, like a lot of romantic comedies. I can it's think of. it's it's just it's absolutely the perfect amount of comic relief, and it was absolutely needed at this point in time. Ten chapters in, and and all we've had is is fight and. And struggle and death and, and march. For, some dismemberment. Pretty heavy, heavy emotional stuff too. Really, really deep stuff. And then we get Lelderin. I just oh sorry. Um I absolutely, absolutely adore. In fact, I read that to my daughter, and as I read it to my daughter, she was falling on the floor with laughter, just peals of laughter as we read that. It was fun. Oh yeah. The I'll tease a little bit of uh, what's to come, but that Asturian mentality and and stuff is is kind of a big deal. And we, and and we get one more reference to Mandarin, the bastard of Vomimbra. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you gotten that fixed yet? Well, there really hasn't been time. <laughs> so, okay, we'll, we'll move on a little bit into the dis- uh, Garion becomes Belgarian, king of Riva. A few. About a chapter later or so. Um, and now we get this transition of him into life as a king. And this is not a new concept. There are plenty of other stories of discovering your heritage and stuff sure. like that. But so I... Finding yourself thrust into leadership. Ellen, anyone? Yeah, yeah. Ellen Venture. Well, yeah. Well, uh, no, he really he put was, himself there. He put himself there, but chapter 13 of this book read a lot like section three of... Of a hero of ages, to me. Okay, so. I'll buy that. I I'll buy that to to an extent. For me, these these sort of uh, ideas in fantasy literature can become very tiresome quickly as we get caught up, and appropriately so, in the uh, the character learning to be a king, the character learning that uh, you know my schedule is made up every day, and Sword you can in the stone anyone. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you can you can be you can dwell in that learning the uh, technicalities of being a king too long, and I I don't feel that's the case here because almost as soon as he's king, he takes off. Right, yeah. right. We have yeah. like we have one or two Which little things that he has to I'm deal with. Super pissed about at first, and then turned out to be really okay with it by the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. I actually wrote down those five fateful words when I was reading that chapter. What? Let's get to the punching. Oh. <laughs> um, no, I was I was. Um, yeah, he spends a little time learning to be king, uh, which which I've never really understood because it's like, hey, you're king. Just tell them to go away or you'll chop their head off. You know, like well, we know you, what happens when Craig gets power. Pretty much. Uh, but then he takes off, like we said, uh, he and Belgareth and Silk take off. And I thought that I wasn't going to get my favorite character for the rest of the book. I was so upset because uh, my favorite character is Polgara. I mm. love Polgara. Uh, but then she comes back, and we get five he, whole chapters ever. David Eddings does a wonderful job of making sure that character that that all of the characters get some play. I mean, obviously, you're, you've you've got your main quartet, and you've got the v- very much the supporting characters, and everybody gets plenty of play. I really, I'm very appreciative of his writing style. Um, it's different from some other authors. There are some other authors that I like that do it that that make sure that characters get all that all characters get their time differently. Um, Frank Herbert is actually one of them um, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about his his style at some point but David Eddings does it different but he does it well and I love I, I love that fact before we go on to, to their journey east in Polgara's yeah. awesomeness I mean his can we go back to, to him being king for a second in sure. Riva because I mean he has there to, is something that happens while he's king he, he has to fend off yeah, a minor really assassination cool. attempt Okay, so there's an assassination attempt. And uh, were any of us surprised at who it was? I was kind of surprised. I, I almost, really? Yeah, I had no idea. I almost called it. Almost. Uh, Ken did. He texted me, and he texted me and said that he told me who he thought it was, and I was like, "I that is exactly who you're supposed to think it's, who? it is." Yeah. Brand. I thought it yeah. was Brand the Riven Warder, but I forgot yeah. he had a kid. And oh. when I read that, it made so much sense to me. Yeah. No, I was, so I was surprised by it, but Old um, but what I was Old ben, yeah. What I was more intrigued by was less who it was and more what Garion did about yes. it. That was awesome. That, um, yeah, now, that was, awesome. was it awesome? I don't know. I I don't know. I, we see later in the book, Olben shows up uh, with Sinedra's uh, army that and she's building, and he is, boy, is he devoted. He yeah. is loyal now. Yeah. I, and I think... Okay, well, we should probably say what happens. He tries to kill Gary, and Gary and finds out who it is. This is, you know, After three to six months later. Search, yeah. I find well, out who... Well, sending Leldoran on the search, up. too. Um, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. <laughs> wow. And I'm messing with you. I'll uh, mess with you. Finds out who it was, and then lets him go. He confronts him in a deserted corridor, says, I know it was you. The kid freaks out. Don't chop my head off. And he says, not only am I going to not chop your head off... I'm not going to do anything. You're not going to tell your dad about it. I'm not going to tell your dad about it. Go on your merry way. And actually, it's his response is, let me kill myself. Oh, that's yeah, right. So I, can, I can spare my father the the, the horror, the, yeah. the indignity. indignity. Well, and he comes back and he says, you're not going to kill yourself. You're not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Nobody's going to know because I need your dad on my side. And you killing yourself is will not going to help mad. that. Yeah. Yeah. It shows probably, it's probably one of the first real adult king moments we get from Gary and we've got a lot of we've got but a lot of little leader I, things I, but I, I think that's probably his, that's I should say a Solomon moment I got it's, an it's impression, a magnanimous king yeah. I got the impression that yeah he was justifying it sort of in that way like oh yeah I mean I need your dad on my side but I also got the impression that he was doing it mostly because he didn't want to deal with it this is you know this is way over my head I don't want to make a decision to have you carted off to prison for the rest of your life or have your head chopped off. That's interesting. I'm going to avoid this. I kind of got that impression, too, and, mainly because he's a 16-year-old king. Yeah, uh, and and he's only been in this role for a few months. Um, and and so I, I can imagine doing the same thing if I were in his shoes. Like, oh, geez, well, listen, you don't tell anybody, I won't tell anybody. Well, and from a I pure immaturity standpoint, I can understand why he did it because his whole uh, – old bands – whole reason was you come in here and my dad's the you know he's the stuff and now you're here and my dad's you know cast aside and that just really ticked me off that's a that's a very teenager way to think of something well and you look at the two these two are basically the same age yeah 
Olben and Gary, and they're having to respond to a similar situation uh, issue um, in different ways. And I don't know. I mean, that's how you read it. I don't necessarily think that I read it that way. I didn't either. Um, I think that it's more along the lines that uh, if if we want to ride that line a little bit. It's that Garion doesn't want to have to kill again if he doesn't have to, and he yeah. doesn't feel like he has to here. Right. Because after Asherak, after burning Asherak with that slap, uh, I, he he's still he's threatened to kill a few times, but he hasn't really gotten angry. He hasn't em- he hasn't embraced that darkness yet. Yeah. He's still and and for me, I guess um, when I read that, I I really did see it as. Um, as Belgarian spending enough time, I'm going to call him Belgarian now, spending enough time around these other kings, learning what it means to be a ruler and learning how important it is that your people follow you because they want to follow you. I, I, I feel like he's been groomed to become a magnanimous, strong king. And this is one of the first times that we're seeing him, that David Eddings is giving us an opportunity to see him developing into this magnanimous strong king which really sets some wonderful things up for book five yeah well it it sets it up well for section four i mean proves that it's it's the right no matter why he made the decision it's the right decision to make because i mean now sinedra's got him herself a a bulldog you know in her fight to amass an army that is a beautiful that is a very asturian kind of relationship yeah very much so okay um we talked well we jumped back but the uh the reason that Garionin decides to leave there's two things i want to hit first we have met every one of the kings he's dealt with that uh, that we're dealing with before in their and, journey and i before. still can't keep them straight it's it's not the easiest <laughs> I, thing. I assume that's okay <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to crucify you for it yeah. but let's just say as long as you know who uh rodar and, um, and Cho Hag. Rodar is king of Drosnia, right? Silk's Correct. dad? Correct. Right. Okay. Yep. Or uncle? Silk's uncle. Dad? His uncle. uncle. Okay. Yeah. And Heg is king of the Cheriks. Right. Uh, that's Barak's Barak's cousin. Barak's cousin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the Sandarian king. I can't Sin- remember his name. Oh, Ratch. he's. Say what? Fulrach. 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 That's yeah. how I say it. Fulrach. And then you have Cho Hag as well. Uh, outside of that, <laughs> let's say you're probably okay. You, you um, got to know Ramboroon. Ramboroon the 23rd. Emperor of the Tolnedrins. Who, yeah. by the Surprisingly, way... Surprisingly, we're doing a good job of remembering them all. I know, right? I don't even have my book in front of me. This is weird. Um, Sinedra. Speaking of Ramboroon, that's her dad. Correct. She's quite the little manipulator. Oh, she runs yeah. through Asturia? Yes. 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 Uh, recruiting... Um, these people who have been in a civil war for generations, uh, or at least on the brink of a civil war for generations, does a great job bringing them all together, and then she marches this giant army right to her dad's doorstep, and everybody's like, what are you going to do? Be very polite. And what does she do? She uh, forces she, him into fit Into a seizure. He, he makes her or she makes her dad have a seizure have an epileptic seizure so that she's got an hour to go talk to his troops and basically manipulate them into deserting their country for the promise of Blood non-existent for gold, gold. Yeah. yeah and the beauty is, is if you look back that has been established as her character trait of being able a to manipulate be, being a manipulator oh, yeah. from the beginning yeah the entire time you've net so when we get to this idea of her raising an army using this manipulation and everything you can totally believe that she's that she does it that she can do it that it's conscious yeah that, yeah you know that, yeah I'm, there might be additional forces at play here but for the most part you look at it and go yeah i can totally see her actually thinking about i'm gonna make my dad go into a fit and then i need you know i need all the red gold you have so that i can go talk to these soldiers and i think since we're in, we're here the raising of the army by Sinedra, this is, I think, in current times, a very poignant yes. topic you could bring up. Yes. This very empowered 16-year-old girl who is leading an army and doesn't have a king by her side at the moment because yeah. Garion's gone. T- tie this into she- the real world? What? This is a This is a situation where where individuals are fighting not for king and country. They are fighting for an ideology. They're fighting for someone that 
for a situation that there is no legal binding reason for them to have to do this. And the way that she, and, and the way that she does it is beautiful. She finds out what their pain point is when she's looking at the surfs. Um, that, that moment for me is, it's, it still kind of brings me to tears when they're sitting there and they're saying, it doesn't matter whether I fight or not. All it's going to do is make life more difficult for me. And she turns and looks at them and says, will you fight for food? Mm -hmm. I'll fight for anybody if they'll feed me. Here's some food. Here's Here's some food. food. It's a very progressive way to look at things. She manipulates, she, she finds out what their pain is, promises them that. And then because of that, they give their loyalty. She does this to the, the, for the Asturian men. What they want is a cause. They want, a, they want some kind of a romantic cause. She gives them one. For the serfs, they want food. For, for the, the Tolnidran, for, for the Minbrates, they, they, just, they just want, they, they want to be recognized yeah. and have a cause as well. They, it's, it's very interesting that was, the two are so similar. But then to the Tolnidrans, they're mercenaries. It's very clear that they are they they're the they're the equivalent of the French Foreign Legion, and they go where they are they go where they are sent because they are paid. And as soon as they stop being paid, they go home. Well, and then she turns around and says, "You're never going to get paid better than this." Mm-hmm. Between the Arendians and the and the Tolnadrans, the Tolnadrans, thank you. I it, it's not really getting them to. Uh, turn against their cause for necessarily it's it, isn't this one of those things where she's basically rallying two countries that are are violating the treaty of Vomembre wasn't that what, what it was called where they're supposed to come to the aid of the west and they're refusing to and now she's ransacking through the country not you know forcing them to but compelling them to yeah it's, it's showing a very strong side of her she's trying to use the the legality of it but it doesn't really exist and Rand Borun does a wonderful job of saying you're not married to him. This is not. You, yeah, sure. Rodar may be on your side about this, but I'm not stupid. I I, I know you're you're riding on a technicality, and I, it doesn't and hold it, up. And here. it's not going to hold up. And she and she does it just long enough to be able to to get him tied into it because she knows who he is, she knows what he is, and she can still get the rest the rest of the army up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part part of the reason I brought up the idea of of a strong central female figure. With, like I said, that fits to today is that's a that's a common cause. This, you know, whatever wave of feminism or whatever we're talking about. I I'm not I am not well versed enough. We're in the third wave, everybody. Third wave. The third wave of feminism. Yeah. I oh. I'm not. I cannot speak well enough to feminism in that sense. That. But the reason I bring it up is because I'm I'm teasing again what's coming. What happens here with what Sinedra does? sets up a huge deal for the queens throughout the entirety of the world on that side. Oh, right. And we are going to get a good chunk of the next book dealing with the fact of queens, in, of women in charge versus men in charge and dealing with that perception. Well, Craig's favorite character, Polgara, takes all the queens aside and tells them, okay, look, you guys are in charge, but... But, yeah, that was a great moment, and that's uh, another great lesson for – it could be a lesson for anybody Any in leader. the real world. Yeah, let, let's say you are suddenly uh, thrust into a management position on the team that you have previously just been a member of at work. You know, something like that. Uh, or you uh, take on a hosting uh, podcast <laughs> gig with – three weirdos uh no but anyway self-inflicted but this idea that uh okay you're in charge now you get to make the decisions it will be better for you and everybody else if you make change come slowly if at all make as few decisions that are that are drastic as possible yeah especially at first um i I remember when i was uh when i worked in banking uh my first branch uh, my the, the branch manager left, went somewhere else, and we got a new branch manager that came in, and on her first day, she made this grand entrance and told everybody, she was from El Salvador or something like that, I can't remember, she's like, you're going to love me, and made all these grand pronouncements, and then proceeded to tear apart every single tradition and way of doing business that we had, uh, and decided, you know, this is, she, it's like she's peeing all over the bank, you know, like, this is my territory now. Uh, and it was terrible. It We had the roughest first month or two with that new leader until I, I, I sat down with her and I know somebody else did. And, and, and she was, you know, kind of on the edge of tears. Like, why isn't this working? Well, it's not working because you are 
<laughs> because you you took you took your power and you ran way too fast with it yeah you know and so that's what Polgar is telling these queens not to do right because it's going to upset your husbands it's going to upset the people that you're uh ruling and it's going to make your life miserable it's it's the idea of uh, very much what is perceived by especially the the kings in the group is fine i'll go along with this our goal is for them to maintain the status quo Yes. That's what we're aiming for. Yeah. And what we're going to see is whether how they manage that, whether they manage the status quo, whether they improve things, whether they make things worse. Well, and the other goes. the other thing is that this is a very this is a very utilitarian uh, move on all of the on all of the uh, major players. They recognize that this needs to happen in order to effectively set the stage for Garion to do what he needs to do. If that weren't going on, Sinedra's little plot would have died in the hall of the Reven King early on, but because it was needed to move things forward. Um, again, I think we're, I think David Eddings does a wonderful job of, of writing this in such a way that everyone sees a measure of inevitability and they accept it. That leads me to my final thought, right? Final thoughts. Is that what we're on to, Or did you have more? Yeah, I, I just want to hit one little thing based on that. I but Todd, I, hold that thought because that's going to be my final thought. Okay, I have a different final inevitability. Thought, yeah, we'll we'll yeah. talk about it. Well, I I think it's interesting this whole thing with like you said that the plot would have died with Sinedra in the in the hall of the Reven King. Every, um, I just find it interesting, Garion and Sinedra's relationship since the discovery, and all of a sudden the teeter totter has flipped on them, and Garion's attempt to right the ship with her is what sparks all of what we're ta- what we just talked about. His thing is, well, her whole issue with marrying me now is that she doesn't want to be subservient to me. So, hey, the Sendarians have a joint setup. Why don't we do that? And so in a very rash action, he says, and she will rule by my side. And Belgarath starts laughing like crazy because he's like, think of what the bear cult's going to do when they find out. Right. The bear cult will be absolutely apoplectic. Yeah. So I love uh, that word. So anyway, I I just I appreciated it as a relationship piece that in an attempt to do good, Garion has opened up a a can Huge of worms. Can of worms. So yeah, that will not die. Which funny enough didn't seem to help his relationship immediately. <laughs> nope, nope. <laughs> because it seemed you to make things worse. He can't please. He can't figure her out and please to to save his life. Absence so. makes the heart grow fonder. Which. Here's my final thought. It's interesting that in making in in uh, absence, it seems like you know Belgarian and Polgara's heart or not Polgara, Sinedra's hearts are kind of growing fonder. All of a sudden, they're thinking of each other. Yeah. Now that they're apart from each other, it, it sets up interesting. Yeah, it's for really good. Book I five. like that. I'm I'm beginning to like the two of them together. I am too. Yeah. That's um, a lot coming out of Ken's mouth. By the way, what a convenient plot device her amulet. Yeah, oh, no, right. Oh, right. <laughs> it's like yeah. a, a, con- a convenient <laughs> narrative device. Oh, you can actually hear everybody else when you touch your amulet. Good. Now I don't have to be in the room to actually hear what's you going on. You don't have to do the Gary. The narrator doesn't have to be in the room now to hear what's going on in other rooms. Well, and you needed it to Very be. Very convenient. They, they needed that to be different. Yeah. yeah. Um, my my final thought is um, for the the interlude at the at the in the fens. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This. Uh, what? The, with the Fenlings and where Belgrath Vordai, gives them the he gives them speech. Vordai, the, speech. The, <gasps> Vordai the Witch of That's the Fens. That's right. I completely forgot about that. You know, for me, it was and for me, it was two things. It was number one that we firmly established that Belgarath still has his power, um, and that his power is based on a communication and a connection with Aldor, which we kind of it's been hinted at, but it was firmly and firmly solidified it's not just something that's in you it's something that's in you because of a relationship that you have um that was and that i liked but even more than that i liked um right at the very end um as as they were as they were walking away from as as david eddings was transitioning when he was when he was saying that garion was starting to see his father different or his grandfather differently um he said 
uh, and I wrote this down, or I copied this. He said, oh, yeah. he began to perceive that compassion was a kind of love broader and more encompassing than the somewhat narrow idea he had previously had of that emotion. The word love seemed, as he had thought, thought more deeply about it, to include a great number of things that at first glance did not seem to have anything whatsoever to do with it. As his understanding of this grew, a peculiar notion took hold of his imagination. His grandfather, the man they called Eternal, had probably in his 7,000 years developed a capacity for love beyond the ability of other men even to remotely guess at. In spite of that gruff, irritable exterior, Belgarath's entire life had been an expression of that transcendent love. As they rode, Garion glanced often at the strange old man and the image of the remote, all-powerful sorcerer towering above the rest of humanity gradually faded. He began to see the real man behind the image, a complicated man to be sure, but a very human one. How you doing there, Todd? I'm a little misty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can tell. It's a good one, though. I've, I I highlighted that in my brain, at least, and tucked that yeah. away. It's f- a fantastic passage. It's Wonderful. interesting to compare his realizations of the two eternal characters, his realization here with Belgarath, and when, he, when Polgara lets him have it back in Queen of Sorcery, and he realizes just how much she's she sacrificed, sacrificed and how much she must care for him. This realization of... of just how much time and effort they've put into making sure that what is about to happen happens in the way it's supposed to happen. It's it's very eye-opening, and it gives you a great character trait, some great character traits to look into. This is one of those places, it's a level three moment for me, it, and, and I think David Eddings does a wonderful job of making it very clear what he's trying to say. And, and I, 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 I assume that he's trying to say that the world is a better place with more compassion in it. And that people who have compassion in as part of their lives are better people to follow than those who do not. And also that we often misunderstand what compassion is and what it looks like. Yes. Yeah. Um, we think being nice is the ultimate form of compassion often, but uh, that's not always the case. Not like being nice is a bad thing. No. But but anyway, yeah, but there's something deeper behind it. Uh, all right, my last thought, because we have got to wrap up pretty Inevitability. soon Inevitability. Inevitability. Uh, what was it that you brought up? Um, that the, that, that if there, if there, that everybody else is starting to sense this inevitability of uh, the fact that they need to do what she's saying, so they okay. may as well let her get away with it anyway. Right. That she has a role to play. It's, a, it's all in the prophecy. There was a, a moment when the, the prophecy... The prophecy in Garion's head is that they're having a conversation, and oh, it's it's when Garion finally uh, reads the the, the, Marin Codex. the Marin Codex, and he finds out what he's supposed to go do, and they're having this conversation, and, and he says, "I don't really have much choice, do I?" And the prophecy says to him, "No, you do not. No, you don't." And this is it's very troubling to me. Uh, and I'm I'm extremely interested to get to book five and realize and have this concept of free will that's been um, dragged through the dirt for four books, um, either buried and dead or somehow you know uh, brought to life again. Because there's this idea through four books now that nobody has a choice that uh, Garion has been led by the nose uh, through this entire thing by, whether it's by Belgarath or Polgara or the Prophecy or Alder or whoever. Don't say it. Shut up, you guys. I can't. So anyway, (laughs) just let me have my moment. That's pretty much it. I guess I'm just, uh, like I say, I'm troubled. I'm troubled by the idea that these people don't have a choice. And that's just, you know, based on my own personal preferences of how to look at life. So is this a wait for book five? Yeah. By the yep. way, I just want to say uh, to all of you listening out there, I'm with you guys. These schmoes, I mean, Ryan and Todd have read it already, but, but Ken, you went ahead and started book five and I hate you for it because I'm with you guys listening out there. I don't podcast this. Um, I, I, I don't read ahead of the podcast. I only um, went a little bit ahead. I am with all you guys. So I, I finished the next book, book already. <laughs> book five is a complete mystery to me. I have no idea what's going to happen. So much fun. Yeah. And I, I, I'm obviously very excited for it. Um, do so we, my final thought I'm okay. going to give you here. My final thought is actually a word of recommendation if you are reading along with us. 
when you hit book five and you hit the section that is titled Mishrak Akthul, dedicate some time because you're going to need to. Yes. And meaning you, meaning it's a page turner. You it you're gonna start and you're gonna go. I need a stopping point. I need a stopping point, and you're not going to get one. Nope. Until the end of the book. Pretty much. Okay. And uh, yeah, so keep that in mind, and just yeah, you're gonna you, when and I, you're not going to be reading what you're expecting to be reading. When I first read this series in my teenage years, I was working at a grocery store as a receiving dock manager, and I read it in the back in the receiving dock, and I took in orders and I set them over on the side and I didn't unload anything for the entire day because I sat in the back room and read that book. And I'm only confessing that now because the business is now out of business. So nobody can get mad at me. Yeah. I read through, I started the book when I was traveling, which is why we missed the podcast last week. Sorry guys. I plain issues, but yeah, two days, two days finishing it because I just, I couldn't put it down. Yep. So, all right. Nice. Uh, the next one, Enchanter's End Game, book five, the, the conclusion of the Belgariad series. And uh, I'm really looking forward That'll to it. That'll be coming be at, at most two weeks from when this is being published. So look forward to that. Uh, other things coming up. Um, in October here in Salt Lake City, we have the Zelda Symphony coming through town. Uh, so we'll be doing a Zelda episode. Todd, I dropped off some games. I hope you're playing those. Uh, I know my son is getting tremendous joy from telling me how to do these games. <laughs> uh, so we'll be talking about that soon. Um, also, January coming up is the uh, the premiere of the Shannara Chronicles on MTV. On MTV, that's still painful to say. Uh, but I'm still looking forward to the series, uh, hoping it goes well. So in preparation for that, we'll be reading the first Shannara trilogy, the Sword of Shannara, the Elfstones, and the Wish Song. Uh, so if you want to brush up on that, that'd be fine. Uh, but that, that'll that take us a couple months, I'm sure, to get to. But look forward to it. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Don't thank forget, you very much. We also check out our website in the near few in a couple weeks. We have uh, Salt Lake Comic Con coming up in a couple weeks as well, and we will be put, we'll have some content and stuff that we post about Comic Con. Live tweeting, live tweeting. Yeah, follow us on Twitter at Legendarium Pod uh, to see pictures and all the shenanigans that we get up to. Follow hey, us on Facebook at the Legendarium Podcast. And by the way, there's only 104 more days until Star Wars comes out. I am awakened. Oh <laughs> gosh! Oh. <laughs> <laughs>